to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 356 and my conversation with the Assistant Professor of Jazz Studies at the University of South Carolina, along with being a jazz drum set artist, composer, arranger, ensemble director, and much more, Colleen Clark. Let's get right to it. I learned of Colleen through a recent appearance of hers on the Discussions in Percussion podcast, hosted by a previous podcast guest, Damon Grant. Her story and her background as a jazz drum set performer and teacher, and all items related to that, were of interest, so it was time to have her on. Colleen's been very much involved in percussion and, more specifically, jazz drum set for much of her performing life. She's been active from a young age and has gotten quite an education from various stops, including her doctorate from the University of North Texas as the first woman and drummer to earn a doctoral degree in jazz drum set from there. She's been active as a performer and band leader across the country and has a great story. Her experiences have been so vast that even at this young age for her, we went long in our interview. So today for part one... You'll hear about her job and the program at USC, her development of Jazz Girls Day, her group CC and Adelitas, growing up in Connecticut, and her athletic years in cross-country running and equestrian show jumping, among much else here. Next week in part two, you'll hear the rest. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on June 28th, 2023. And it begins right now. And the other thing is, I have no idea what this would be. If something comes up, you don't want to talk about whatever's your way of telling me to stop. Yeah, that, that'd be fine. If you, if there's a, uh, our Blakey solo, you just want to play like right then and there, just jump, just step right back and go for it. I mean, I'd be happy to hear it, honestly. Uh, Yeah, exactly. I know you're right there. Actually, here, let me show you something. Um, yeah. This is an Art Blakey case. Whoa. You can see. Yeah. Woo. Yep. Isn't that cool? And then this is like, he used it. Um, so he's got like some flight info. Um, Japan Airlines, this is baggage. Oh my gosh. Yeah. As you can tell, I'm a, I'm a bit of a Gretsch girl. Uh, so <laughs> any any kind of like... Gretch anything. Of course, Blakey played Gretch for a while. Um, long, a long time ago, I, uh, when I was living in New York, I worked at Steve Maxwell's, um, vintage and custom drums in Times Square. Yeah. And that's where I met a lot of my, you know, longtime friends, um, drummers, um, heroes. And, and so we had a big, um, I don't remember who it was, but we had a huge, um, Art Blakey, collection come through um that was donated um and a parts of it sold i'm assuming obviously but um we were allowed to choose one one piece uh from that and so that that i have that i always have that with me um because he's one of my heroes so you you know you watch videos of him now today and you're still just like how are you doing that yeah yeah and then you hear like stories we just you know i just finished um teaching at the brevard jazz institute and so we mm-hmm. had our guest artist this year was was branford and so um he was telling stories about how you know blakey didn't like him 
and was, you know, like, it's just funny um, just to think like, wait, what you're, we're, you're, you're an artist known by just your first name yes. and telling kids about how, you know, didn't have it easy. Yeah. Well, isn't <laughs> Which the, is good. Yeah. I, I think, I, I feel like I've heard him say, I think, isn't the story that he was, was cause was Blakey was someone who like made facial expressions when he was playing and, and Branford was like, why are you doing that? And you're, and, he, and Blakey's like, Hey man, I had to survive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and absolutely and and he he was not an easy boss and yeah. we all know stories about that so anyway but yeah it was just it's just always interesting for our students to hear from you know our our most famous you know jazz musicians um and leaders um that you know it ain't easy all the time <laughs> yeah uh, it's a good lesson it's a great lesson mm, so. yeah Colleen Give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities as they are right now. Okay. So my percussion responsibilities are the following. Um, I teach uh, my jazz drum set studio here at the University of South Carolina. And then my colleague, um, Scott Herring, who's the director of percussion here, um, we uh, communicate uh, about, you know, students that are studying with him that want to have drum set lessons as a secondary uh, lesson. We'll split lessons with those students also is a great drum set player and he teaches drum set too, but um, he is trying to uh, make sure that students leave having a better understanding of jazz drum set um, education and how they can potentially like as, you know, band teachers or whatever they end up doing um, can start a jazz band and be confident in their role as a jazz band director. Tell me about getting the job at South Carolina where you were before then um, what kind of position okay. you come into when you when you start working there, et cetera? I graduated from the University of North Texas in with my doctorate in 2019. One of my main mentors there was the chair of the previous chair of jazz studies, John Murphy. Um, and he's the one that that really uh invested in me and my brain and research um and was the one that um really encouraged me to do my dissertation on the evolution of the ride symbol pattern from 1917 to 1941, which has been accessed over 3000 times now, which is kind of crazy to me. Um, But so many people um, are so interested in that topic. Um, Not only drummers, but educators too, like learning how um, uh, this, you know, unraveled and and um how our how it affects our understanding of jazz history and our instrument the drum set because the drum set didn't always look like the modern drum set that we have today john was integral in the success of that work john unfortunately got very sick throughout that time period and um the University of North Texas um, hired me to take over his jazz research and jazz history courses during the fall of was it 2019, right after I had graduated. He had to take a medical leave. And so I was teaching, I had already moved home to New York. Granted, I was living in both places while I was doing the doctorate. So I was between Denton and New York, but I had already moved back. And um, I said, sure, but I'm not, I, I can't move again. Like my life is in New York, my family's here. And so we agreed that I would teach online. We didn't know that COVID was about to happen. Um, this became the norm. I taught those 
classes online from New York um, through to the through the fall of 2021. Unfortunately, John um, uh, got sicker and and passed away. They had opened up his job at UNT and they hired a fantastic uh, professor there then was also teaching at uh, Borough Manhattan Community College, which is in uh, Lower Manhattan in New York. And um, I was teaching just a few classes for them in person and online and then COVID. Um, and so that's kind of, that's where I was at. And then I saw the the job posting in fall of 20, now I'm, now I'm trying to remember, 21, right? Is that right? Yeah. I asked my family, I'm like, what are we thinking about maybe moving to South Carolina and it was like, yeah, let's try it. Let's see what happens. The interview process was was wonderful and super positive. Um, it was it was one of for for people that are you know I know I know a lot of percussionists listen to this and and um, I try to tell my students like ask me questions about it while it's fresh. I always tell them it's the typical interview process, meaning that you send in all your materials um, and you cross your fingers, and then if you hear, uh, you usually get an online, um, or a phone call, uh, online interview. And so I, I think I did, uh, I think I did two zoom interviews before I was invited here. When I was invited here, it was one of those, um, that it was still kind of COVID. -y, so <laughs> they're like, are you comfortable coming down? I was like, Oh, absolutely. I will say though, it was, it was kind of funny. Like that was the first time I'd flown in a long time, obviously. So I like got to Atlanta and I'm like, whoa, there's nobody here. This is so weird. You know, it was still like super light, you know, there's like, particularly for Atlanta. Know, um, that's really, really weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like the hub, you know? And yeah. so I get there and I'm like, I got my symbols on my back. I'm like, I'm not bumping in anyone. This is super weird. You know, like, and as a New Yorker, she was just so used to like being around people all the time. Right. So I was like, wow, oh, whatever. And, and so <clears throat> I get over here, I had gotten uh, picked up by the the chair of the committee and he, he showed me around. Um, he's amazing. He was like, he was the number one, one of the number one opera calls, the baritone calls in Europe. Um, and uh, Jacob Will, and he's from here. And um, the dean who became my boss, um, he, he, you know, Jacob told me the story in the car when he picked me up. So I was like, oh, like, what, what's your story? And he was like, yeah, Taylor, our, our boss, uh, had called me and asked me to, if, if I wanted to end my career in academia. And so he came back here after being in Europe, the top call, it's pretty amazing. So anyway, so he's driving me around and I was like, I'm a huge women's basketball fan. I'm from Connecticut. So I grew up like watching wow. Diana Taurasi. How, how much better did that go? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, well, family was like, wait a minute. So this is our main rival right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, but I was like, Hey, like, um, Jacob, he was so sweet. I was like, do, do you, um, like, where is the Asia Wilson statue? Like, where is it close enough for me to walk from the hotel? And he was like, Oh yeah, Colleen, you can do that. And I was like, okay. So he dropped me off and I got, I went upstairs and then I was like, well, let me try to, you know, also like walk around campus. And I was telling students like you, it's like when you're like trying to find a school that you want to go to, it's the same thing with your job. You want to see, could I see myself here? Could I see my family here? You know, is it comfortable? What's the campus like all that stuff. So I was like, well, I'm going to go see Asia first. The statue, this is the first statue of a, a women's, um, uh, athlete. Um, and she's the most decorated athlete in the history of USC. Um, 
had just been erected, I think like maybe a year before or something. And so, um, or maybe even six months, I don't, I don't know. Um, don't quote me on that. Um, so I'm like, went over to colonial life, um, where they, where they play all their games. And I looked up the statue and, you know, I said my, my things and, um, I'll see what I said. Well, let's see how this goes. And the following morning, um, I had a meeting with the Dean first. So it was like eight 30 in the morning, eggs with the Dean, you know, like, okay, let's, you know, let's, eggs. let's see how this, this rolls. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I told him and I, you know, I thought of this on the elevator and I was like, let's see what happens here. But I was like, I said to Taylor, I said, listen, I'll be your Don Staley of this jazz department, you know, and I will do my best with my colleagues. And I didn't know at the time that they were going to hire Dr. Matt White, who's our chair of jazz studies, um, happens to be an incredible colleague. And is, we are all on the same page. Um, but at the time, I was like, man, I'll be your Don Staley. I, I will get kids here. We we're going to have national success, international success, um, our Little program is going to be on the map, not only in the, you know, as, as the premier program in the South and the Southeast, but one of the premier programs in the nation. And he seemed to like that. Um, and so, and also like Don, Don Staley, like coaches, like the queen of South Carolina, you know, like mm -hmm. she's like, yeah. And then I went about my day. It was like, I had to teach some classes and I tell students this too. Like, you never know what you're going to be thrown into. So just got to be, um, uh, overprepared and flexible. And I, and that's the kind of my saying now, because, um, that's what they apparently said about me. They said, well, Colleen was, they were impressed with my overpreparedness, but my flexibility with all the things that were happening, you know? And so basically I taught all day. Um, and then I went into the committee the last time they were asking me kind of the same questions that I'd been answering for a couple months. And, I finally said to them, you know, listen, and and, and this is maybe not good advice, but <laughs> this is what happened. Uh, you've been talking to me for a couple months now. <clears throat> you've seen me, seen me teach all day. This is me. You know how I'm going to answer these questions. I really like all of you, and I think we can work well together, but this is it. Like, you can take it or leave it, and I'm cool either way. And <laughs> I realized, like, in that moment, I'm like, oh, damn, like, maybe I Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have done that, but at the same time, that's me. <clears throat> and then we went to dinner and it was lovely. And then I left and that was it. And so, you know, that waiting period is excruciating. It's like, oh God, you know, you just, cause you, in, in that, like my family's like, stop thinking about it. Stop thinking about it. Like, right. I'm like, well, what if, what if I did this? And it's like, no, it doesn't matter. Cause everything had already happened. Right. And then I got an email um, from the dean. Hey, Colleen, um, is it okay if I call you? And I was like, immediately. It was like 30 seconds. Like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then I talked to the dean and um, and that was that. So it, it was um, a super positive experience. I, I knew that I could see myself already, you know, like. Do you know if your process was there were you were the only person brought in? Uh, or was this a, like, you were one of a group and you might have, you knew where you were in terms of how many others there were coming? Yeah, they told me when I was here, there were two others for my search, but they were doing two searches simultaneously. So they were doing Matt's search and mine. So uh, that committee was like going through like a lot of stuff. Yeah, I got <laughs> Like a lot. <laughs> um, 
in a good way. Like they, they, they said that it was, it was a very, you know, uh, strong pool uh, of candidates for both searches. Um, but yeah, they had, they had given me a heads up. I think I came in on a Wednesday and they had someone on Monday and then someone on Friday as well. And I will say this too, Scott Herring had sent me an email the day after I came, went home. Just, uh, just so nice to meet you. Like I really, uh, just very encouraging, liked how I taught. And um, he he said, you know, I think we could work really well together. He, you know, it was just, he wasn't on the committee or anything. He was just being nice and reaching out and, and letting me know that, you know, he had my, he had, um, supported me and like no matter what had happened like he he was there which I thought was so professional and awesome and that's just Scott too like he's just very kind so yeah but yeah and then I can't I went home and waited and like I said it was excruciatingly uh, painful <laughs> but it was pretty quick I, I you know you go through those things and you're like oh, that must have been like a month but I don't think it was I, I would have to look at my email but it was it was like maybe a week or two I, I don't really remember you're probably yeah, busy and you're probably busy enough that like like a lot of things you know you you either apply or you put in for it and then as that process is going on you just have to deal with your own life so it's not like i think frequently you, there's not a lot of times where you're there's a lot of times where you're just like oh right i did apply <laughs> well yeah and I, I tell students that too it's like Part of why I, I knew I had to have the doctorate was because I was applying for jobs after getting my master's degree in New York for community colleges, part-time work and whatnot. They wouldn't even look at me without the doctorate. So I had been applying for jobs for like uh, 10 years or something. You know what I mean? And yeah. he, I'd pick things up here and there and, and whatnot. And so I always tell students just, it also like keeps your CV up to date. Right. It keeps you accountable. Like, oh, right. I should, I got to, I did this cool thing. I got to add it in and, or I got to keep my website up to date. Oh, I got this new recording. I got to put it up, that kind of stuff. So it also is a really good way to just stay up on your, on your own, um, on your own uh, resume, which is, can be annoying at times. Right. Because we, like you said, we're so busy doing a thousand things, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so that's kind of, that's kind of how that was going on. And, um, you know, um, I, it worked out that I worked for North Texas all the way until I came here. Mm. So, yeah. At South Carolina, is your job and your responsibility structured in a way that allows you to still, if you're, if you are interested to do as much of the performing that you had been doing or a level of it that you, that is acceptable to you? Oh yeah, absolutely. And it actually, <clears throat> I think because of, I mean, you know, I've been in New York since 20, New York city since 2010. Um, and then I was doing kind of the back and forth in Texas. Um, so I was working a lot, um, already, but at the same time, because of COVID, it kind of died out. I was doing in-home recording, like all of us, you know, like I'd send tracks to people would ask me for stuff and I would do that. And, um, and whatnot. So it's almost like when we came and it probably like, you feel like this too, like when you're coming out of COVID, it's like, oh, right. This is what it's like to like have gigs again. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's one of those things where it was just like nothing. And then everything. Um, I will say that the job <clears throat> has, um, because it, it was such a competitive, um, uh, 
application experience, the job has uplifted me even more, meaning, you know, I have this, I have the University of South Carolina as a platform to go out and teach more, go out and play more, et cetera, et cetera. So my responsibilities are not only just uh, drum set, but I also do um, jazz history, a jazz research course. Um, I, I conduct the second big band and then I, I coach the top combo. And then I also oversee um, all the other combos. So like um, uh, we have two, it, it depends on the semester, but we'll have like two or three combos. And then for, for the, um, the folks that are teaching those other combos, I support them like um, however I can and, and help them coordinate gigs or whatever, that kind of thing. To add on to that, I mean, our, I was looking at our schedule before we logged on. And I think in the spring, USC jazz faculty have maybe one weekend off, you know? Um, and that's, that's like USC stuff. Um, my fall, um, I'm doing another record with Michael Dees in August. Um, and actually Matt is going to be on that too. Um, and he's doing some arrangements for that. Um, let's see, we just got off of, I just did a, a entire week run at the jazz showcase in Chicago, um, with a new band that I co-lead with Sherelle Cassidy called Alliance. And we did a record when we were there as well. Then I did two weeks at Brevard with Rodney Whitaker and, and Michael Dees and Greg Tardy and, and Branford was there. Like it was just wild, amazing, you know, Jocelyn Gould. Yeah. I think that this job is just, it's so awesome because uh of that flexibility you know and that understanding that we um we are only as good as we say we are we have to do it in practice too right so we got to be out playing these big gigs um we got to be on the scene making sure that that students know that we are not only able to teach, but also play. And that's what makes me so proud working here. Me and my colleagues are equally talented in the classroom and on stage. Like we've had over 30 guest artists in less than two years and we play for most of them and we learn all their music and we're all playing at the level. And that is like, I don't, I don't know of a lot of other jazz faculties that like to do that together, can do that together, you know, with schedules and whatever. And so it's definitely, I feel super fortunate that that we have that. Our saxophone professor, Lauren Mecha, is from South Carolina and is a graduate of this program, studied under Bert Ligon, who of course is the distinguished professor emeritus of jazz studies. Um, she's super bad and she's just, um, and she's also a great vocalist. Um, and she's been, she's been on so many of our projects as well. Um, Matt is a Guggenheim winning composer. Between all of us, Craig Butterfield uh, was in the Maynard Band after North Texas, uh, bass player, uh, also is an amazing classical uh, bassist. And so like between us, we've got just this level of um, understanding and respect for the music and um, and respect for our students. We're just, we're, we're all in on what, what do they need what do they want to do in their careers and how can we give them the tools to do that successfully so that when they leave here, they're ready to do it. And that they also know that they can always ask us for help when they've left. And that says a lot about 
collegiality that it's like you you have everyone there. It's like you can you can actually be a self-contained jazz apparatus and you don't have to go to New York or Chicago or LA or wherever you know, to, to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny you say that. So like, as I mean, I'm like, like, you know, if we were to do stereotypes, I'm like the snobbiest, most elitist category because I am from Connecticut. So I'm a New Englander. And then we lived in Manhattan for over 10 years. So it's like the worst of the worst, right? I mean, if we're talking about just like generalizations, right? Sure. And so, you know, and New Yorkers too, like it's, it's hard to live in New York. I love New York. It's like part of me, right? And I miss it a lot of the times. And I wouldn't have had so many playing opportunities if I hadn't lived there and met, met you know, D's and all those cats like a long time ago and there's still friends and all that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that, you know, you can't play at a high level if you don't live there. So I tell my students that like you shedding here in Columbia, South Carolina is no different than you shedding in a tiny closet in New York City and paying a lot of money to shed in the tiny closet in New York City. You know what I mean? So preparation is is no different wherever you live, right? If you're invested in the music and you respect the music and you you want to be the next best advocate for our music, whether it's behind the drum set or or wherever it may be. So that's number one. Number two, our faculty, we all come from very different circles. So me being the New Yorker, that's one thing. Matt is a Miami Nashville guy. So like he did his, his stuff. Um, he did his master's and a doctorate at university of Miami. So he's got that scene going on and then went to Nashville and was, was in that, in the recording, in the session scene. So like one of his greatest friends is Jeff Coffin, right. From Dave Matthews, like they're tight. That's, that's, that's part of his network of people. Lauren's from here. So she knows everyone. So she's hooked into all, all the, the Charleston jazz, crew um she's hooked into all of these uh, of the the atlanta all the south southeast crew which is great so we just between the three of us have completely different networks so it makes for really a really vibrant um outlook on what jazz means for us and for our students right and also it's just it's a great um model for a life in jazz right? It, you can do it anywhere. And as a, a younger, 10, year, 10 years ago, as a younger New Yorker, I, I thought, this is the only place in the world you can do this. That's not necessarily true. It's a Mecca, and there are the most amount of people doing it at a high level, for sure. But that doesn't mean you can't do it anywhere else. So that's also me maturing, you know, getting older and and realizing that, um every place you're at, you can make the most positive situation, right? There's good people everywhere. And so um, I like to tell my students that it's like, when they ask me like, oh, Dr. Clark, should I move to New York? And I'm like, I'm not going to say no. I think you should try it, right? Try it out. Absolutely. And if you don't like it, don't be embarrassed. That's okay. That just means that's not your spot. That's okay. Right? We can all figure out what we all need to do for ourselves and our lives, but I, I always say, try it or you know, should I move to Chicago? Try it. Why not? I'll hook you up. Like between the between us, we all have people in all these different places that'll help you out. Absolutely. But there's not one end all be all. I have to be in this one place at this one time playing jazz music and it's going to be perfect and the stars are going to align. It's going to be the most musical 
perfect jazz situation in the history of the world. It's like, no, that's, and I'm exaggerating obviously, but you know, um, I think if we have that outlook of like, we can put good in any of our communities and we could do it at the highest level and the community will realize that and support it, you know, and that's, you know, a good segue for something that, that I, I founded the first year I got here, which is jazz girls day. And um, something that I wish I had as a, as a youngster, um, basically a day program where middle school and high school girls can come to wherever we're hosting it and they could have experience or no experience um, and play jazz for the day. So they get, we've written a whole curriculum. We're actually expanding it to have different levels because um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I hope to have j- at least one University of South Carolina jazz girls day in every state by 2030. So we are, we are doing that as well. <laughs> um, but basically uh, we have three, we host three in South Carolina every year, one at the University of South Carolina, one at the Fine Arts Center in Greenville, which is what we call the upstate. And then one in the low country uh, in partnership with Charleston Jazz, which we've now, um, they have graciously uh, agreed to always do it the weekend of the Charleston Jazz Festival. So because of that, we had the great Cindy Blackman Santana come and talk to the girls yeah. for an hour. Uh-huh. <laughs> on, on her own accord. She was just, she just wanted to be there. And um, that was one of the best, I'm probably the best masterclass I'll ever see in my life. Mm. Seriously. And also like, I've been a fangirl of her since I was little because between her and Sheila E, those are the first girl drummers I ever saw like yeah. on TV, you know? I made her was the that on the was that. that on the when she was playing with uh, Lenny Kravitz? Correct. Yeah. yeah. And then I I saw I mean I went to um, my dad was a musician um, in his former life, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and he would take me to all like the clinics. Uh, we had like this little drum shop in in um, uh, in was it Manchester Dynamic Percussion in, in Connecticut, and they had they'd always have um, like master classes. You know, big guys come through, and Sheila was one of them. And um, so I saw her when I was little and I also saw Bernard Purdy and Joe Morello when I was really little too. So like, that was like, so cool. Um, But anyway, yeah. So uh, uh, Cindy came through and um, I had made a certificate for her that she was, I said, I hope you're okay with this, but you're our first artist ambassador for jazz girls day. And she said, she took it and she said, um, I'm so proud of this. I'm going to hang it on my wall. Oh, my mother is going to be so proud of this as well. And I was like, I like, I was like, I could have died. I was like, oh <laughs> well, I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> I was like, Oh my God. Cool. And the kids, they were so into it. You know, it, it was just phenomenal. So um, we hope that um, that trend can continue um, in partnership with the jazz uh, Charleston jazz festival um, that uh, at least one of their, artists will um be excited enough to drop by each each year and so the kids will have access to that whomever it is you know um each time and then i've done it in st louis um i did it in columbus uh we're we're doing our next one in connecticut in the fall um hope to go uh over to georgia we're overtaking the u.s with jazz girls day which is which is really phenomenal it's it's really your cool. plan that was the plan that was the plan. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, people talk about like these vision boards. I'm like, I yeah. guess, yeah, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I guess <laughs> people keep asking for it. So I, I yeah. okay, cool. Yeah. So. That's awesome. 
Tell me a little bit about your composing portion. I mean, I've had different variations of my own bands in New York and, and composing original music since 2012, basically. My latest project, though, is uh, it's really interesting. It's not necessarily it's not necessarily composing as it is more arranging. And so I have um, taken, and this started at North Texas, a huge interest in Mexican music and culture. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of research uh, and actually uh, won a grant through USC. Um, I spent some time in Mexico in the fall. Um, specifically um, in uh, the Biblioteca Nacional um, and the the Nacional, uh, the Phonoteca as well. And so um, basically trying to find more um, cancions and corridos from around the the, um, revolutionary, uh, Mexican Revolution uh, War. And so um, the idea is- Remind me, what's what's the dates of that? Yeah, so like 19 teens in there. My interest really also expanded when I learned about there were these women soldiers of the Mexican Revolution called the, they called them the Adelitas. And so, and there's actually a song connected to that as well. The band um, that I'm I'm now going to be will be in Hilton Head and Kiwa Island in January with some other and doing a record soon co-producing with Quentin Baxter um, from Ranky Tanky. Um, so the band is called CC and the Adelitas. So it's me and my Adelitas. And it's basically me, um, uh, you know, uh, using the 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 top women in jazz artists uh, of today with Mimi Jones and Arco Iris Sandoval and Summer Camargo, Lauren Sevian, um, among others. So, you know, to represent not only just jazz as a globalized music because jazz started as a globalized music but also the fact that students can take an interest in something outside of jazz and create something that is inspired by jazz and maybe explored and played in the jazz setting so this is a you know a research interest of mine and part of part of the grant that i won um, from usc was so that I could do more research so that I can write informed liner notes. One of my friends, um, maybe you've heard of him, Ricky Riccardi. He's the the head archivist at the Louis Armstrong. Um, now the grand opening Louis Armstrong Center, July 6th. Oh my gosh, that's so amazing. Um, Ricky, right, he, he won a Grammy for his liner notes for uh, Louis Armstrong RCA uh, uh, re-release. And and he's like, he made this series on his Instagram called like the Grammy man. And he just pretends to be like this, like I'm a Grammy winner. He's like all ridiculous, you know, like, and it's just, he's always laughing at himself, of course. But that whole thing really sparked my interest in, in, in connecting again, the, the stage with my academic life. So, okay, I need to do some more, even more research um, so that I can make um, really awesome liner notes. So people really understand where I'm coming from, know that it's a a well-researched area and learn a little bit more about history with our neighbor, you know, um, our very close neighbor, Mexico, um, and how, um, how that history can influence us um and our music making and whatnot and so right now that's that's what i'm i'm working on we we will be hitting the studio soon so i'm i'm tweaking some things we played at the gen conference um this past january and i'm still like i'm still hearing just really amazing feedback from from 
all types of people, young people, older people, uh, people from this country, people not from this country, um, um, just about how, um, you know, and it has inspired them and how, how it's been presented in an eloquent, eloquent way. Um, but also just how the musical experience, the, the playing at such a high level was really, um, uh, informative, but also like inspiring. And so, um, that's my latest, my latest thing. Um, and again, you know, I, um, I'm just so excited that it's, it's finally taking off. I've been doing this research since 2017. And so it's like, now that I have the, the space and, um, um, the capacity and support, you know, from the university as well, it's been, it's been a really fantastic journey. And I, I can't wait to, to get this recorded and, and tour with it. Because again, um, just from, from the, um, experiences where where we've done bigger performances people have really felt connected to it and again you know the whole point is to show the students this is something you could possibly do in your own way obviously but this is a way yes I'm in my office we're in the academy we're in the university but that's not where it starts or stops right I mean the stage is where we connect with people and, um, you know, the songs are all in Spanish. You know, my audience is not your stereotypical jazz audience, right? We're talking bilingual audience, maybe Latin Americans that are curious about, well, you know, what's Colleen going to do with this tune that's already been recorded a million times? How is it different or whatever it may be? And so, or they're curious about the history of like, what are the Adelitas? Like, why do, why is this significant now? Um, why is this important? Why are, why is a, a, an all-female group important? Well, it's important for a lot of reasons, but my thing is cats need to hear an all-female group play at the highest level possible and realize like, oh, this is a thing. And, and I think it, the, th the thing at Jen was particularly exciting because there were so many young people this next generation that's coming up that are just like, yeah, this is normal. This is normal. I think we're just so used to having one girl in the band. Right. If that, that. if that, you know, it's funny. Like I just, and I talked to Lauren, my colleague about this often, we're just so used to that. Yeah. Right. And so like, and Lauren will play with Adelitas too. And I think it was two of them had never played in an all female band. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. And it was just like, right. Like, okay. And there's nothing wrong with, with being the only girl in the band, but it's, it's definitely a different vibe. And, and I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just different. So, sure. yeah. So that's, that's my latest compositional extravaganza <laughs> that yeah. is taking up uh, my ears and my mind in the, in the night. Like I'll, I'll wake up and have been dreaming about, melodies or harmonies or whatever and i'll try to sing it into my phone and then transcribe it the next morning um that, that that's kind of where i'm at right now i normally would hold off till till later to ask you this but i'm because you brought it up the situation where it's like one or maybe two if you're lucky um women who are who might be in a big band or something from your research you teach jazz history you i i know you've thought about these things what are the primary reason or reasons why this has happened? That it's that it, that something like an all that you have people who are professionals who have never been in an all women jazz band, or you know, and it's probably I mean probably was never really in like 
they would have to really struggle to figure this out or try to do it maybe where they're at. They don't know enough, uh, whatever. So what's your take on that? 2023. Well, I mean, yeah, if we go back in history, so the first all-female big band was the International Sweethearts of Rhythm, and it happened pretty much because all the men were fighting in World War II. So yeah. they had they had a big, you know, um, they were popular, and then when the war ended, it kind of dissolved. Mary Lou Williams and Marion McPartland are kind of our, our go-to women in jazz when we teach jazz history. Partially because Mary Lou Williams um, was hanging out with the Beboppers, with with Tad Dameron and and Dizzy, South Carolina native Dizzy Gillespie, um, and Bird and all those cats. Like there, there's there's photo evidence uh, in the Library of Congress of her hanging in the apartment with all those cats. Um, her compositional output. There's a great article that I can't remember who it was written by that talks about Mary Lou Williams and a duo concert she did with Cecil Taylor. That's pretty interesting. You should check that out. Um, So, and, and she also had long, long life, longevity. Um, Marion McPartland gets, becomes well-known because of her NPR show, Piano Jazz, which was the only, really the only standalone jazz show um, uh, with, with over 30 seasons. And I have to bring this up because it was actually, it was recorded in New York, but it was, uh, all the production happened here in Columbia, South Carolina. Oh, and nice. Matt has gracefully brokered a deal with the archive. And we are the only people with exclusive access, USC jazz to the Marion McPartland piano jazz archive. So right now we are slowly digitizing, um, and tagging, doing metadata, uh, tagging on all those artifacts. And we hope that in the future, uh, a graduate assistantship, um, can be connected to the piano jazz archive and they'll, they'll help me and Matt in the archive so that we can actually use those resources in academia and make it, and make it one of those accessible archives like, um, the Institute of Jazz Studies at Rutgers, um, w- which they have the biggest Mary Lou Williams collection period. They, they have all that there, like the Louis Armstrong um, Center, um, something like that, so that people can come and do research. Um, but we have we have exclusive access to that, which is super exciting. Um, and actually, we've we've um, because of that access, I have been able to add in a tune that she wrote, um, Twilight Worlds, um, to our Jazz Girls Day curriculum, which is super exciting because kids are like, who's that? And then we are able to say, hey, guess what? Like, you know, this is very important for our state, you know? And yeah. so um, between um, Marion and Mary Lou, you know, if you look at at jazz history textbooks, uh, Scott DeVoe, jazz, um, if we look through jazz history and um, what has been written about women in jazz, it's basically them. And this is, and are you're being specific though to, are you being specific to just instrumentalists and not yes. all the vocals? I'm being specific to instrumentalists. Okay. Yeah, because I mean, when we talk about women in jazz, you know, we we can easily name vocalists. Yeah, yeah. Right. We we can easily name Billie Holiday, Sarah Vaughan, Ella Fitzgerald. Another leg of this chair chaired problem. That's not a. You know what I'm saying. Um, another um, thing to think about is the gendered assignment of instruments. Right. That is still done by band directors to this day, um, whether it's 
um, subconsciously or not, I, I don't know. But um, I'll tell you, my personal story is that I um, I mentioned earlier that my dad was a musician. He wanted to start a family band. So um, he had my sister. Well, we both learned piano when we were little. Uh, the deal was I had to take a couple years of piano lessons and then I could get a drum set. And so um, he was a bass player. She was a piano player. My sister was a piano player. And so when it came time to, oh, we're going to choose our instruments in band. This was in fourth grade. Um, you could write down your three top choices, right? So I, I think I even wrote like drums, drums, drums. Like I didn't yeah, nice. That's <laughs> I didn't right. write anything else. Yes. Then you put, did you put like subset <laughs> um, like um, drums as like drums and then yeah. drum sets or something like that as the. I mean, I think I'm pretty sure that's like, I was like a footnote, very soft, footnote, yeah. Uh, yeah. double bass kit or something. Precursor like that. to my life. Yeah. yeah, my research life footnote. I was a saucy, a, a saucy stinker. And so I go home and I was like really upset because they gave me flute. They assigned me flute. And so my dad, like he was also a, um, an agent. So he had like a, a um, an, you know, an, an entertainment agency. So he booked like all the guys in Hartford um, and kind of around Connecticut. He knew my band teacher from like, he would book him to do stuff too. Um, and he, Basically, they had this um, like a drop off line, like where parents could like drive their kids, you know, um, to school and drop them off. Yeah, so yeah. He drove me the next yeah. morning. I didn't know this happened until later. But the band teacher was doing um, like parking attendance, like park parking lot, like he was just standing out there. Yeah, basically, yeah, I know. Yep. just like make mm -hmm. sure, you know, everything's yep. cool, just normal. Um, so he's like, OK, bye, Colleen. Um, I'm like, oh, OK, bye. See you later. He's like, I'm going to talk to your band teacher. So my dad, my dad was at the front of the line and there were like a lot of cars behind right. waiting and honking so, probably. Like, <laughs> so he gets out of the car and he's like, Hey man, I saw that you sign Colleen flute. Like she doesn't want to play the flute. She wants to play the drums. He's like, no, 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 no. I've already got 14 drummers. Like I can't, I can't have another one. He's like, she'll start lessons tomorrow. Seriously. She really wants to play the drums. And he's like, no, 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 Tom, no, no, no. I already have too many, um, too many. I can't, you know. And he's like, I'm not going to move my car until you agree to this. Yeah, dad. And like, again, I did not know this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, like, I'm like, damn, dad. Um, and so he's like, oh, my God, fine. Okay, whatever. Because it got like uncomfortable. People are like, what the heck is going on out yeah, there? Yeah. You know, it worked out like the first year. Um. Uh, I was one of three that made it for the whole year. You know, right, you know right, the story. Right. If he hadn't like done that for me, maybe I'd still be a flute player. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, I always knew that the drums were, were my calling. If we go back to that, and I'm not saying that, that this is like a terrible story at all. I'm, mm. I'm just saying that that's the norm. Like I was a little girl and I was going to play the flute. Yeah. You know, because that's, that's, Right. Um, and so we you know, still have was, this problem. It, I'm sorry to, to again, jump in, but you reminded me that it's like, okay, what instruments gendered wise do young women get pushed to flute, clarinet, both not in jazz band, French horn, not in jazz band, you know, yep. piano, but not, not that kind of piano, uh, bells or bells. mallets, mm -hmm. not drum set. Anyway, mm -mm. just, yeah. Oh, yeah, on, on down the line. Yeah. Then in the eighties, when we have like 
Sherry Miracle and Terry Lynn Carrington and, you know, um, like with her babies, but Cindy Blackman, Sheila E. Like it's 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 a big deal that we have all these drummers that are female. You know, Terry Lynn was discovered when she was tiny, like 12, I think. You know, I and, and again, like it's it's it just took a man to say, oh, yeah, you can do this really well. Okay. And, and that's the other thing too, like, especially like surrounding jazz girls day, I'll have guys that are like, um, Hey, Colleen, like we want to have this at our school, uh, but we don't have any female teachers. I'm like, that doesn't matter. Like the whole point is community. Like it's not about an us. I'm never an us versus them. That's not my thing. You know, like I want to, I want to, to help show your community that you are there for them in this way too where, you know, a lot of the times it's not so easy to do that. Right. And so, um, a program like jazz girls day is just like a no brainer. And so you'll see a lot of like our press on jazz girls day. A lot of the pictures are, are Matt teaching and people are like, why aren't there more pictures of you calling? I'm like, well, because I'm doing a hundred things, you know, like, <laughs> and it's also like, that's a good thing. Like, it's a good thing to have him playing the trumpet with a jazz girls day t-shirt on. That's okay. And he's the, he's our boss. Like, um, we are probably the only, I mean, we are definitely one of maybe zero <laughs> jazz, full-time jazz faculty that is two women and, and three men, right? So we have like two out of five are, are women instrumental. Yeah. Like I, I can't name another place full-time instrumental that has that. I really don't know. And, and if someone listening to the podcast can, can call me out on that, do it. Cause I want to know who those other places are, but you know, again, just, just this idea of people vouching for, for, for kids too, young kids when they want to play a certain instrument is okay. <laughs> like it's all okay. It's good. It's a, it's a good thing. And so I think, you know, this combination of like jazz history and, and how, how it unfolded also think about the time period, right? I mean, it would be, it, you know, Viola Smith, incredible drum set player, um, she was, what did they call her? Like little Jean, little Jean Krupa. Um, Viola was an anomaly during that time period. Think about it though. You know, housewives, domestic, where would drums come in there? Right. So I think too, when we teach jazz history or history in general, music history, for example, and we don't let kids know what the heck was going on during that time period. They're not getting the full story, you know? Um, and actually, I'm trying to think if I have this here. There is an incredible new book uh, called Sophisticated Giant, written by uh, Maxine Gordon, who was the spouse of Dexter Gordon. She went back to UCLA and got her uh, degree in ethnomusicology and studied with um, her mentor was uh, Robin um, Robin Kelly, who wrote oh. like the, the monk. Yeah, you have it with you. Bam. Love That's this book. Up. Right. Life and times of an American. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. Maxine does an amazing job with, you know, explaining in the book, what is going on in history? Why did Dexter leave the U S well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about racism, you know, because yeah, it's, it's no, uh, it's no joke and, and it's, it's serious and it's, it's integral in our music, our black American music. So again, and yeah, not just, just, and not just him, Josephine Baker, Paul Robeson, 
uh, Marion Anderson, like there's just Kenny uh, Clark, James Baldwin, like, yep. yeah, yeah, they all went yeah. there because it was they didn't have to deal with the crap of being a black American while they were in Europe. If we think about all those things, it kind of makes sense. But at the same time, what doesn't make sense is that uh, why it's taken so long for us to now finally see more girls on the bandstand. And I'll, I'll say this too, you know, like, so my, Michael D's the best trombone player on the planet by far. But the only Colleen, Colleen's holding up. Tell, oh, tell yeah, me, yeah. Remember, this is a, this is an audio podcast. So just tell people what you're holding. Can't see on audio. Wait a minute. I'm just They're like, who is this lady? Um, so I'm home, I'm holding up uh the latest recording, Michael D's recording. Uh it's called uh Music of Greg Hill, the other shoe. So I'm on this with Virginia McDonald, super bad clarinetist, clarinetist only. Okay, jazz clarinetist only, modern jazz clarinetist out of Canada, myself and Liani Mateo. So of the core uh band, it's it's D's, Virginia. Keezer on half of it, Jeffrey Keezer, you know, who was a, a in, in Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, Luther Allison, Liani, and myself. So one, two, three, four, five, six is the core. And one, two, three of us are we, women. You know, like, and this is part of Deez's mission too, is is to, he's, he's at a point in his career where people are really listening and and seeing his example, right? And taking it seriously. This is part of his mission, too. It's like, you know, we got to have more representation on the bandstand, period. Right. And so and you see it. Rodney's group with uh, he just had it at, at Dizzy's. Uh, he's this great young drummer, Maria. And I can't remember her last name. She's a student of Justin Faulkner. Her handle is Drumming Squirrel on Instagram, if anyone wants to look her up. Um but you know, like cats like Justin, uh, who is a, a an advocate for for uh, women in jazz and also just quality, you know, music making and respect for the music. All these cats, you know, they, their voices matter and um, their support matters. You know, Justin, um, when he was a, a younger cat, you know, uh, his big sisters were Tia Fuller and Mimi Jones. Mimi's got this amazing project called the Black Madonna. And she brought it down here to Columbia to play at the museum. She brought Justin with her. And um, Justin told me, yeah, I mean, you know, Mimi calls, I drop everything because she's like my big sister. She looked out for me when I was little. And so, you know, there are so many like really important women in jazz that have looked out for, for, for younger cats. And I love that the younger cats now are like, yeah, it makes sense, right? I should be doing this too. It's the right thing to do. And so <clears throat> if we add all this stuff up and we look at today, the modern day, you will see so many young young players, young women in jazz having extremely successful careers already, which is amazing. And, I, and I'll give you one example. Summer, I had mentioned her earlier. She plays in the Adelitas. Summer Camargo won the Saturday Night Live job at age 22, Okay. And she is a, a Juilliard grad. Um, her mentor is Wynton Marsalis. Um, she subs for Wynton when he can't be in his own band, you know, and that's a really big deal. She was a graduate of the essentially Ellington competition where they first saw her. Um, you know, she won a composition award there, her playing, you know, 
she's got this incredible mix. Like when she plays with the Adelitas, I was like, check out some mariachi before you do this gig. So, okay, cool. So she's got this like amazing mix of like mariachi and Louis Armstrong. And I'm like, those are like my two favorite things, you know? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> right. I'm like, awesome. you know, um, and that's why it's her gig. Right. And, and so, um, summer is, it's just what my prime example of like success. Um, and she's got a record coming out soon. So cats should look out for that too. Um, but you know, these opportunities, um, even though they're a little later than we all like to see, it doesn't matter because it's in the positive. We're in the green now. You know what I mean? You know, I think it all it all adds up to it doesn't matter what you look like, but if you respect the music and you and 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 you want to play at the highest level, you will be given that opportunity. And it's it's a much uh, more even playing ground, I think, now than than ever before. So I have to say, I love that that that's the most mention of cats, I think, in just a short period of time. <laughs> so that was amazing, by the way. I just, <laughs> I like cats because it's like not not everyone is included in cats. Yes, you know? it, it's true. It's a it's an all y'all or something like that or yeah yeah exactly yeah. I haven't given into that yet. I, I try to. It's okay. So I, I but and I grew up in uh, on Long Island. So um, I, I I and but I went to school in North Carolina in multiple places, and so like I had very much like I get now. It's 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 very like the y'all is a very useful too uh tool yeah yeah it is because definitely. particularly you probably grew up with you guys is as a possibility in Connecticut. oh yeah yeah oh yeah yeah and even um like gino Ariema still like the team is the guys guys come uh, on get it together yeah. guys so, like that's what we always say that i still say that i'm like guys i don't mean it like that i'm just that's just how i just right i get i know <laughs> cats, cats, cats there you go Yes. Letter B, one, two, you know, okay. <laughs> right. Yes. The other thing I want to ask you related here is, um, I think I, you talked about this when you were on Damon's podcast, um, was, uh, were you the first woman to get a doctorate in jazz drum set at UNT? Yes. Did you know that? When you While were I was doing it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I didn't think about it, but sure, yeah. I mean, it's very I, obvious when you're walking around the halls and there's only three other women in, you know, in the program of 300 plus people. Yeah. Pretty obvious, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm was, laughing. Was, I don't mean it in a funny way. It's just like, uh, you know, right? Yeah, it kind of speaks to your point. I think more than anything else, rather than yeah. there being anything else to say about it. I just, I just found that shocking and not surprising equally yeah i mean i i I, i'm the first but i hope i'm not the last i mean and and it's actually the 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 dma in jazz as well i'm the only female period there from there yeah first but hopefully not the last doing a doctorate is is not easy you know it's it's Mm -hmm. it's not an easy feat you know uh, my motto was tick the boxes you know i had a goal of getting out of there in three years Mm-hmm. with the document done. Yeah. Um, I wanted to have, you know, they have different levels of, of, you know, dissertation options. You know, you can give a lecture recital or whatever. I'm like, all the cats can play. Like right. I got to have a document that shows that I've got this other thing that a lot of people don't have an interest in trying to do. Right. And I got to do it at the highest possible level. And that's why I started off the show with like how important John was to me. Yeah. And so, um, and he saw that in me and was like, you can do this. 
you yeah. can do this. This is this will change, you know, this will change how people think about time on the drum set and in jazz. And also, you know, you're going to be one of um, not many academic uh, pieces about the drum set, you know, yeah. and of course that's changing e- even, even, even since that's been published. Uh, I'm working on a chapter for something, you know, yeah. uh, another drum set book. And and so that, that, that is, is changing quickly, but yeah, I, I had to make sure that I, I took care of business um, in every way possible. And, it, you know, there were, you know, it was like an obstacle course, like a three-year obstacle course, man. That's, that's how I can, you know, there were easy parts and terribly challenging parts, you know, because of various things, you know, the, 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 um, the, the course load, you know, our te- we were teaching like basically full-time jobs too while right. doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, they have this, it's amazing. They had this thing called the syndicate. It's like a little club inside of their um, student union. And on Wednesdays, it was, it's always um, lab band night. And so from nine to midnight, lab bands will play. Uh, but Wednesday was like a hard coursework day too, meaning like your teaching load was pretty heavy. Yeah. So I would, I remember, you know, and as a lab band director, I, I conducted the highest lab band um, that a student can conduct. So the rule was though, if you're a lab band conductor, you're at every syndicate every Wednesday. I get to school at 8 a.m. Wednesday morning and I get back to the apartment 1 a.m. Thursday morning. Yeah. I'm not complaining. I'm just no, no. That was what you had to do. That's what you got to do. And you know what? That experience plus the comprehensive exams. So you have, um, we had six, uh, no, not, oh gosh, was it six or nine? I think it was nine hours of writing Mm. for the exams. And then you had to defend your exam, your comprehensives, Mm -hmm. which is different than defending your dissertation. Right. But that whole process you know, when, when I was alluding to or what I told Katz about earlier, you know, my last committee interview on, on the day of my interview. Yeah. I was like, damn, North Texas got it right. I just killed that for like 12 hours and I feel good. I didn't feel tired. You know, I was like, yeah. oh, man, like good, bad, the ugly. They prepared me. Yeah. I I can't complain about that. Right. And, and my, my colleague... My colleague that won the job at UGA, same thing. Mm-hmm. He's like, man, we did it, you know? And yeah. he graduated six months after me, and we got big-time jobs in the SEC. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. So people listening that are doing the teaching fellowships, you eat that up because it's a training ground for your, your life if this is what you want to do. And that's what it should be. That's what it should be. Right. And I, that's I, why it's the machine that it is. I was, I, I'm hoping that you, um, in your jazz history, you reference yourself, you're, that you, uh, it's like, you can see from this, as uh, you talk about drum set and you're like, as you see like this history of, uh, written by Clark comma. Oh Clark. God, no, Jesus. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'll show it to, I show it to students. Like I'm, I'm, I'm doing a, right now I'm teaching a, a course online for jazz history course for non-majors. Mm. And I, I put in a link, like um, I'm, I was doing a unit and I'm like, Oh, you know, while I was, I'm trying to get them to understand a little bit about like archives and how they're important. So I had yeah. mentioned, um, I learned about 
this amazing um this amazing drummer entertainer freddie crump from like the late 20s and he'd be like doing acrobatics but had like still have the most beautiful touch when he actually like somersaulted over to to the drum set i don't know if you've seen videos of him yeah look up film just type in Freddie Crump and, and you'll find it. But I was introduced to Freddie Crump by Vinnie Pelote, who is like the head um, researcher and archivist at Institute of Jazz Studies at Rutgers. And so I, I told the kids that like, this is how I got here. And then he's the one that hit me to this. And I reference it in my dissertation. And I that's all I would, that's all I'd put. I don't think they're going to click on it, whatever, you know. Sure, yeah. Now my jazz students, yeah, they, they understand the heaviness of that and 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 they'll ask me questions about it my drum set students in particular obviously you know i want them to, to leave here having a, a quality understanding of our instrument and, and whatnot mm-hmm. yeah. but yeah no i'm not like oh referencing the hell no oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway I, i'll you think about it that's all i'm saying no, I mean, uh, not now, not, yeah. not in the, not in the, this decade. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. Um, but let's back up Colleen and you've already kind of alluded and talked a little bit about this, but when you start playing percussion, are you focused solely on drum set or are, are you involved in like marching band? Are you doing concert instruments? What's, what's kind of the beginning of that for you? Well, I'm from Connecticut, so we don't have marching band because we don't have football. That's true. I mean, yeah, not in this, not nearly in the same way if we have it. No. Yeah. So when I got here and they're like, oh, we're going to you're going to play the halftime show with the marching band tribute to kiss on drum set. And we're going to roll you out on these things. and We're going to have smoke machines. I'm like, huh? Like what? OK, what am I doing? So, yeah. When, and then when I told the band people that I'd never been to a football game, like one of the guys like almost fell out of his chair. He was like, what? I'm like, I'm from Connecticut. Yeah, we almost got the Patriots. We built Rentschler Field for the Patriots, and then they went to freaking Boston. No, well, they're Foxborough. They didn't Foxborough. even go to Boston. <laughs> yeah, they went to Foxborough, Gillette Stadium, or whatever. Is it Gillette? Yeah. My public school education was deeply rooted in jazz. Um, the high school band um, has won the now deceased Berkeley Jazz Festival, high school jazz festival, multiple times. Um, I won best soloist one year as as a as a youngster. Um, so our focus was jazz, but at the same time, I got a full. Um, I had a. Uh, I started in a, a music store in in town um, with Mr. Schaefer, and he got me all ready to go. My hands ready to go. And then when I was eleven, I started studying with the great Alexander Lepak, who is known for um, the Frege Lepak Timpani Method book. Um, he founded the percussion department and the theory department at the Hart School of Music. I was with him until he passed away um, in my early twenties, and so he he oh man he got me ready for everything. He was the timpanist in the Hartford Symphony for over fifty years, um, but was also a swinging mfr on the drum set like he man he taught me everything um possible um and so and especially as a a youngster i mean i i ate all that up but he really got my ears going uh with timpani and singing and tuning um when i was little which i'm really grateful for because i think that's why my ears are so good now um you know even in playing situations or um when i'm with the big band or whatever i'm i'm i think sometimes people are still shocked that i have great uh, intonation perception, you know, um, 
And so I, I do really, uh, that's a testament to, to Mr. Leapak. I mean, the other thing about Mr. Leapak is he was, he was super heavy in New York too. I mean, he recorded with Sinatra in LA. Um, he, his, he used to tell the story, him and Louis Belson were great friends. Um, and Duke Ellington had called Mr. Leapak to ask him to be part of the, to be, to be part of the band. At the time, he would have been the first white member of the band. He called Louis, and Louis had just like his wife was pregnant. It was about to give birth, and was like really struggling. He didn't have any work, and he was like, "Man, take the Ellington gig." And he was like, "Really?" And then, of course, Louis Belson becomes um, iconic for his work with Louis Belson, and then the implementation of the two bass drums. And so, um, you know, that's just kind of like one of those like um, like pueblo stories, like village stories, but it's. It was the truth. And, um, you know, that's the kind of person he was. And that's, you know, me growing up with him. I hope to be that person for for people and my students. After I studied with him, he prepared me for um, my undergraduate degree, which I did at Ithaca College. And I studied with Gordon Stout, who is still my mentor to this day. And so I always laugh and joke um, here that I, you know, I used to know how to play the marimba. I can remember how to hold the mallets. Um, of course I can. Gordon taught me more about music in those five years that I was in Ithaca than, uh, than I even knew was happening. How to be a great musician, how to be prepared, how to play the gig, how to be a good person, um, how to be hireable, all these things. Um, which then prepared me for, I then did my master's degree at SUNY Purchase where I studied with John Riley and John Faddis. Different scenario, obviously, because I had done the, the undergraduate in classical percussion and music education, which um, to this day, some some jazz educators are like, where'd you learn how to teach? I'm like, well, I have a music ed degree. <laughs> you know, and at the time, Ithaca College was the number one music ed degree um, in, in the U.S. because we had uh, Dr. Mark Fonder, who's now over, oh my gosh, where is he now? Uh, he's in the Midwest. Um, Dr. Beth and Steve Peterson, like we had just the best, the cream of the crop, um, there. And so, um, then I went to SUNY and, and started kind of those New York connections. Um, and then that interaction, um, and my networking that happened in New York, once I realized I really needed to do the doctorate, I reached out to Ed Sof. I had known him since I was little. I did North Texas jazz camps in 1998 and 1999 when I was 12 and 13, I think. We kept in touch over the years. Like any PASIC I'd go to, I'd always go to his classes because he's a master in master classes. Like if if people listening to this podcast have not seen Ed give a master class, please figure out a way to, to do that because he's incredible. Um so I wrote him about the doctorate and he's like, yeah, Colleen, um, but I'm retiring in a year, <laughs> but I'll be with you. Like I'll be with you the first year and then I'll, I'll support you. And I was like, oh, okay. So yeah. So I kind of went down there for, I mean, I went down there for Ed, but then John, John was part of the picture and helped me realize what my brain could do too. And so it worked out, you know, it was one of those things that um, everything happened how it should have. And and Ed too, like he called him when I got the gig, and I was like, I got the gig, and he goes, um, he goes, oh, um, because he's good friends with Bert Ligon, um, the the previous director of jazz studies, and Bert would bring him and like Bernard Purdy out 
And they'd always like go get barbecue. And he's like, oh, you got to go to this barbecue place. I can still, he's he's like, I'm a vegan now, but I can still taste it. (laughs) Which I thought was so funny. I'm like, oh my God, Ed, that's so funny. Um, So yeah, he's also been so supportive. He checks in with me, um, you know, um, with like how things are going and ask him for advice. Um, If I have questions like about a scenario or, or a curriculum thing. Um, he's been fantastic. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been quite a, quite an interesting journey, um, from is it freezing cold Ithaca, New York to super hot Columbia, South Carolina. (laughs) When you were growing up, were you involved in anything else that was uh, non-music related? Did you do sports, student government, church, anything that was also filling out your time? Oh my gosh. Wow. No one's ever asked me that. Yeah. I was involved in a lot of things. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I just saw this commercial. We were watching basketball, um, WNBA season. And there's a commercial with like Candace Parker. And she's like, 80% of, what is it? 80% of women leaders today were involved in sports as young people. And I'm like, Oh, that's me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, a lot of people don't call cross country a sport because there's no ball, but yes, I was. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I never heard it direct, said like that, but that's yeah. That's funny. So yeah, I was an avid runner. I'm I'm still now just a runner for fun. Um, but yeah, I was the captain of uh, our varsity cross country team and broke some records and did all that stuff. But I also oh, just, was just that. A, that's all. My name. Well, I think to myself whatever. like. No, not anymore. The kids probably killed all that by now. Um, kids are so like so much smarter than us when we were younger. Anyway, and faster. And anyway, um, the other thing was I was a uh national championship horseback rider. Um, so oh. I did yeah, I did show jumping. Um and oh. yeah, so that was um very prideful and and fun. But yeah, so we're we're farmers. My Family has been on our farm for over 75 years. Um, and my grandfather is 101 and he's still like outside mowing the lawn and, mm-hmm. you know, doing all that stuff. So, yeah, I grew up around animals and horses um, on the farm. And I do think that has a lot to do with, um, you know, like how people joke about like, you need to build character. I'm like, well, actually, that did help. Yeah. <laughs> Shoving out horse stalls and getting water, yeah. buckets of water. And yeah, I think it helped. But also that connection with animals too. Like I, I, I had, um, I still think about like some of the horses that we had and my championship horse, um, Chloe, she was, she was the shit. So anyway, I had a great relationship with, with her and, you know, like it's just, it's great to be out in nature and just, uh, understand what that connection with animals can do for you. Um, and also just like sport, you know, sports are, sports are very important. Um, and I think, um, you know, when I teach because, because I grew up also like watching a lot of basketball and now we're very much into soccer and tennis, um, just understanding that sports mentality, you know, I still, to this day, I, I watch a lot of, uh, coaches talk about how they coach. So, of course, my first example of that was Gino Oriema, but now the big example is obviously Don Staley. And so I listen to every single podcast she taught, she does. I listen multiple times, um, just taking notes on how to be a better coach here in my studio, in front of the big band, um, with the small groups, um, eat on, on record dates, um, 
maybe not being a coach, but being a good team player, you know, being a leader can look like a lot of different things, right? A good leaders know when it's time for them to step back and let someone else take charge. And good leaders know that it's the best possible thing when the student realizes that they can be the leader, you know? Yeah. I study a lot of um, film too, of, of, of Dawn Staley, of how she moves and how she talks. Um, And it's funny, you know, she, she had, oh, she did a podcast recently, like within the past couple of months, you know, they lost the, they did not win the championship um, this year. And she said something like, I'm at my best when the worst things happen. So, because I know how to deal with that and how to rebuild. And so right now we just lost a national championship, whatever, weeks ago at that time when they recorded it. So I'm not at my best right now, but I'm figuring out how to get back to that. That I think for me, uh, the, the most significant coaches and leaders and wherever it could be, you could be a dean of a school of music, you could be a president of a university, you could be a um, coach of t-ball, it doesn't matter. Um, you have to be able to lift people up when they need it most and um, do it in a graceful way and let them realize that they have the power to change their situation at any given time. And that's really what our job is as um, musicians and um, music leaders, You know, especially in an academic situation like this. Going back to the show jumping. Oh God. Uh, okay. Because that's fat that's super fascinating. I is there a like a practice plan? Like th- this is part of like, I mean, I think you know, you might see, I think most people would probably like encounter sometimes in the like in the Olympics, they'll see the equestrian events and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. and but like what's the prep like to to be ready to to compete on that level? Obviously it's, it's physical, physical shape of of the animal and of myself. I mean, it's every day. It's it's basically you're working out every day. The thing with the, the jumps show jumping is that, you know, horses, because they're animals, you don't know how they're going to react to certain things. So a lot of the prep would be uh, putting scary crap in front of the, the, you know, scary meaning could be like flowers next to the jump, right. Or different colors stuff that that could uh distract her from her job and you know that was kind of part of the prep but also just like physio like like a lot of um even though the sport was in the ring a lot of our training was in fields and woods a lot of um you know hills that kind of stuff um and also just connection uh, and trust between myself and her, you know, knowing that if something happened, we had each other's backs, you know, um, we had a situation. Um, I was training one time in the grass uh, and it, it had rained earlier and I didn't know there was like a slippery spot and she oh. fell on me. Like we fell oh my God. and um, she didn't freak out. She just waited until I got my leg out from under her and then she got up. So like there was definitely, um, we, we had that bond and that trust, um, uh, you know, so that was part of it too. And, and you think about like mental uh, preparation, um, a lot of it is trust with the coach. Like you got to trust what coach tells you, meaning like, she's going to take you out for this X, Y, Z reason. That was the right thing to do. Right. Same thing with the bond with the horse. You know, we have to um, 
again, it's an animal, yes, but at the same time, we're going through different scenarios and situations uh, where different elements uh, could pop up and surprise or et cetera. That kind of uh, relationship uh, building was really the most integral thing. I would have to imagine, and I might be wrong, so please correct me on this. Prior to a horse trying, like lifting off to jump something that if, if it's not working, I would assume there's some way the horse indicates to you that like, no. Oh yeah. They'll stop. Not this. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. They stop. I mean, and that's the other thing too. You gotta, you got you, the, the human has to trust them to, to let you know when stuff isn't right. Yeah. And, but that's also, I think too, going back to that, like bond and understanding, knowing the animal, um, what they feel like, you know, um, something feels off, funky, you know, that kind of thing, knowing or having the wherewithal to stop and examine the situation before any injury occurs is is the most important thing. Am, Am I right to assume that there are times when you would get on the horse and the horse would be like, not today? Yeah. Yeah. Then you take it easy. Yeah. Go for a walk, go for a trail ride. Just enjoy each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I the same thing with her. She'd probably feel that like, oh, Colleen's not, she's somewhere else. But yeah, you know, hopefully by going through this and being together, she gets back to planet Earth. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I never really thought about it. You know, like, yeah, it's, uh, I haven't thought about that stuff in a long time. But yeah, that, that, um, was, yeah. A massive part of your life, I would have to imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It was about, yeah. Like, yeah. 25 years or so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, I still have all my, my tack and all that, like mm-hmm. in the barn and whatnot, no animals in the barn right now, but oh. yeah, yes. I'm, I'm a little busy nine months out of the year. So what? This is shocking news. <laughs> I, we, you know, we're in horse country though. We, we've been bad. We, we got to go see some, some uh, events and stuff and, we have a great uh, equestrian team here at USC, actually a great barn hmm. and everything. So yeah, it's on my list of things to do when we're in town. It's just, I'm, I'm you know, you're not in town. That's some stuff going on. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's nice to just be home and not go anywhere too. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, that's, that's amazing. Have you, have you met any other musicians in like, who've done horseback riding? Uh, or at least the, the kind of the version, uh, the the competitive version that you did. I don't think so. No. Mm-mm. Not yet. Yeah. Maybe Not yet. Podcasts will write you and say, "Hey, Pete." Yes. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be cool. Yeah. The yeah. the one thing when when you said uh, just backing up to the the cross country is um, I, I always say this tell the story we we um, when I was in college. They had like a, a panel of of all the of like every sport, you know. They had like basketball, uh, men's and women's basketball players, football, uh, track, baseball. Like you know, it was like a ask these ask athletes anything kind of thing. Right. And so, one of the football players just looked over at the the cross country person. He's like, uh, "You need to tell everybody what your running schedule is because they're going to pass out." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was and like. Actually- an ungodly amount of miles per week. Yeah. I mean, men's too. They'll probably run. I mean, depending on where they're at in their season, they'll run 90 miles a week. Yes. I mean, I, I, I will say not a lot of people know this, 
but I went to running camp as well. Ooh, all right. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Green Mountain Running Camp, which was in the Green Mountains in Vermont. So imagine there's no flat course. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and high high altitude. It was like higher elevation, not yeah. high altitude, but sure. But the whole thing was like you did it right before the season, so that when you went back to your normal, um, wherever you were from, that your lungs would be at a higher capacity because you'd been in the mountains, you know? And so, yeah, now I think back to that. I'm like, damn, that's crazy. That's dedication. <laughs> anyway, uh, now I can't even walk up that mountain, whatever the hell they <laughs> are running on. Oh my God. No way. No way. But yeah. That's, that's hilarious. Need the horse for that. Right. <laughs> And we'll hear more from Colleen Clark next week in part two, so stay tuned. This week's rave is what appears to be the film event of the summer, Barbie, starring Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling, Issa Rae, Kate McKinnon, Simu Liu, all of those folks playing Barbies and Kens, America Ferrara, Ariana Greenblatt, Rhea Perlman, and Will Ferrell, among many, many others, and written and directed by Greta Gerwig now playing in theaters everywhere. For months, this film had been paired with the movie Oppenheimer, due to both coming out in big release on the same day. Barbenheimer! Get it? Well, I may get to Oppenheimer the movie soon, but let's talk now about the Barbie movie. One of the things I enjoyed about the promotion of the film is the fact that this movie got billed as whether you loved or hated Barbie this movie would be for you. I read a review that also included those who generally were indifferent about Barbie, which would be my camp, to which I'd say that this movie was also for you. Greta Gerwig, the writer-director, has been involved in movies for a long time, but has recently been more on the directing side, doing both Lady Bird and a recent version of Little Women. If you've seen her acting or directing work, you likely have an idea of the humor and satire that is part of her worldview, and it remains here. There are several great cameos and in-jokes, along with asides that reference movie history that are pretty amazing, including one specific reference that I will not mention here, but I'll just say that it seemed like she talked to my wife about it beforehand. The movie both celebrates and takes a shot at the culture of Barbie, both within the Barbie world as well as outside of it, where the Mattel CEO, played by Will Ferrell, and the creator of Barbie, played by Rhea Perlman, are trying to get a handle on things. The through line between the Barbies and Kens and the real world is done so through a mom, played by America Ferrara, and her daughter, played by Ariana Greenblatt. I won't say much more, but if you could see this film in a theater with a crowd of folks, then do so. It has real, sincere, serious, emotional moments, but it is also full of tons of jokes, a great visual concept, and lots of song and dance numbers that take everything to an absurd level. It works in ways I wasn't expecting and hit the mark for a great summer film. Check out Barbie, now playing in all theaters. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. 
You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud and Spotify and other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next week for part two with Colleen Clark. Until then.